I've been listening to Stevie Wonder this week. <laughs> you two was last week. <laughs> I've been listening to Stevie Wonder. In fact, I've been singing Stevie Wonder around the office, and um, I think Karen's getting a bit sick of it. Stevie Wonder has a beautiful song called Isn't She Lovely? This is the 70s Stevie Wonder. This is the best stuff. And um, it's a beautiful song, Isn't She Lovely? Isn't She Wonderful? Isn't She Precious? Isn't She Lovely? I can't believe what God has done through us, He's given life to one. But isn't she lovely? Made from love. It's a really great song, and it's a really addictive song, which you'll have in your head for the rest of the day, I promise. (laughs) But I actually think inside this song are all the components of worship. It's a fascinating song, and I want today to talk about what it means for us to be a worshipping community, because this is the final week in this series we've been looking at um, around uh, the gospel and the church, and what it means for us to be the church uh, and it means that we are a worshipping community. And worship uh, is deeply interesting and fascinating and central to the human life, not just the Christian life, but the human life. Uh, today I'm going to talk a bit about that, and Stevie Wonder is very helpful in this regard. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she precious? Well, Let's note a few things about this. The lyrics involve the word uh, the praise. They are a praiseworthy word. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she precious? It's a song about the birth of a little girl. And you can hear in the language the praise that emanates forward. And in fact, in a sense, our life emanates with praise all the time. In fact, praise is occurring around about us all day and every day. It's coming from our own lips and it's coming from the lips of the people around about us because there is, of course, a sense in which all enjoyment immediately leads and flows into praise. Every time we enjoy something, we tend to get that sense of praise for what we've enjoyed naturally flowing for us. So walkers go for a walk and they praise the countryside, C.S. Lewis says. Uh, Readers read a poem and praise their favourite poet. Um, Players praise their favourite game. We praise the weather or sometimes curse it as well. Uh, But wines and dishes and actors and horses uh, and colleges and and countries and and situations, we are forever full of praise. We're praising the things around about us. We're looking at things that are of worth. And as we enjoy them, part of the way we express enjoyment is to say, wow, isn't it lovely? Isn't she lovely? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it precious? Isn't it fantastic? what has happened or what this is. I started a book last night by Ian McEwan and I read the first chapter and even as I was reading the first chapter, a few lines, I just were thinking to myself, this is magnificent, it's beautiful, wow, that's really well said and still can hear it because I go, "Mm, yes, yes, (laughs) even though I'm reading a novel and she knows I've hit upon a line that just sings and that, "Mm, yes, yes, is me praising the author. 
right? The praise just naturally springs and overflows from the enjoyment. But here's an insight. I didn't keep it to myself. In fact, even as I was reading these lines, part of me wanted to stop and say, hey, Sil, listen to this. Listen how McEwen articulates this at this point. In other words, I wanted to share it. There's something about praise which longs to not just be expressed, but shared. Listen to the lyrics. Stevie Wonder says, isn't she lovely? He doesn't write a song called She Is Lovely. He's saying it. He's sharing it. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she precious? Isn't she wonderful? And so there's something uh, about the enjoyment and the praise of something that that isn't complete until it's connected and shared with somebody else. Have you noticed that? You enjoy it and you want to say to someone, this is wonderful. The weather, what a beautiful day. Isn't it a beautiful day? You want to say it to someone. You may think it, but it's almost like it's not complete unless it's been expressed and connected and passed on to someone else. Have you noticed how people who are in love can't stop telling each other how wonderful and beautiful they are? They don't just think it. They want the connection of sharing it, and they brag to other people. Isn't she lovely? Or isn't he lovely? (laughs) It's almost like the delight is incomplete until it's expressed to someone else. In fact, it's almost frustrating to have something and to enjoy it immensely and for it to be praiseworthy and have no one to tell. You hear a joke and it's almost like your enjoyment, you hear the joke, you laugh at the joke and then you think, who can I tell this joke to? Do you realize, you you look around for someone. It's like my enjoyment of the joke isn't finished until I've passed it on. My enjoyment of the book isn't complete until I, look at this, look at this. Or People are always recommending things to other people. You must try this. My wife does this with food. Mm, This is magnificent. Here, and and suddenly I get a fork shoved in my face at the restaurant. Have a a try. And I'm like, look, I'm okay. I'm doing well over here with my... But do you know what I mean? It's, It's like part of her enjoyment isn't complete until she's given it to me. So there's something else in there, isn't there? To enjoy something that's praiseworthy is about the sharing. And we find this actually all the way through the Psalms as well. It's almost like a command in the Psalms. Not just, Lord, you are wonderful, but isn't the Lord wonderful what the Lord has done to us? Declare, the command says, of the goodness of God. And so this this telling that goes sidewards about the wonders of God. Declare to the Lord, the Lord is good. The heavens even declare that the Lord is good. The creation itself sings out and praises God and tells us the glory of God. And so there's something about worship which just isn't about saying something's good. It's about spontaneously enjoying it by sharing it with other people. So worship actually, I think, is intrinsically communal. It's something that we do together. Not just because we come into the same building here to do worship in in this way, liturgically on Sunday morning, but even when we're alone somewhere, we, we praise something and we long for it to be a communal experience, to say together, it was so wonderful. Not isn't she lovely, or she is lovely, but isn't she, or isn't he 
lovely. It becomes a shared experience. The third thing is that there's a sense of worth and value at the heart of worship. In fact, the word worship originally was worth-ship, something that is worthy. It's precious. In fact, worship is essentially the act of ascribing worth to something. I don't know if you uh, of an evening in the late afternoon or early evening have a chance to have a look at Antiques Roadshow. Antiques Roadshow is a very addictive television program, isn't it? And it follows the same pattern week after week after week uh, where people bring along something that they uh, hope has worth. <laughs> and uh, they, they bring it there and then a, a per- person wearing a um, sort of pretentious jacket and cravat uh, sort of waxes lyrical, um, having looked at Wikipedia a little bit earlier in the day, as to what this thing might be. You know, they're wonderful experts. And they explain it, but then the whole, it's all incomplete, right? And you go, oh, that's interesting. That's a lovely statue. That's a lovely watch. That's a lovely painting. That's a lovely collection of dolls. But if they just left it at that, it's so unsatisfying because we need the climax. And what is the climax of Antiques Roadshow. What's it worth? <laughs> What's it worth? And, and you're hoping, you're hoping, there's something inside of you that just wants it to be an undiscovered, priceless antique. It's almost like that makes the program, I mean, you, you're hoping, the person standing there is also hoping. And, um, and, and there's this funny ritual when it comes out and says, well, actually, you know, you, this looks, this dusty little thing actually is a very rare piece and it was belong, it belonged to Cleopatra personally and it's worth, you know, 47 million pounds. And the person has to go, oh my. Well, that's a, <laughs> their understated English way, you know, think, oh my, well, that is, you know, my grandfather paid four and sixpence for it. <laughs> at a yard sale, and, 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 and they stand there at under, you know, and but they're astonished, and then there's all these people around that give a polite clap because they've found something that's beautiful and worthy, and of course, they have to quickly add on the little, of course, we would never sell it. It's worth too much personally to us, <laughs> which is the little clause as they rush down to the auctions afterwards. But it's a lovely moment when, it, when there is a genuine sense of, oh, this old thing, oh my, oh my. And they look at it in a different way. This is not just something that grandma gave me. It's not that we've had it sitting in a cupboard and so forth. But now, what will you do now? Well, now, wow, now that I know it's worth, it will, A, be insured, B, be properly cleaned. Three, will take pride of place in the house. It's not going back to the cupboard. It's going to have pride of place because this has suddenly gone from being just some incidental thing in astonishment and joy to being the most precious thing in the house. It's Amazing. It's wonderful. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it precious? Isn't it glorious? And no one will ever come to visit that house without being introduced to this thing. That's worship. 
That's worship. To suddenly recognize with astonishment the precious worth of something. And doesn't Jesus use these stories all the way through? The kingdom of God is like a penny that's been lost and you go and search the house until you find it because it's the most precious thing. It's like a treasure in a field that you leave in the field, go away and buy the whole field. Sell everything you have to get the field so you can get the treasure. This is what the kingdom of God, it's to recognize the, with astonishment and joy and elation the worth of something that you hadn't previously realized. But I tell you, it's not just about recognizing something has worth, but recognizing, I think, worship is about ultimate worth. That is, the things that we worship in our life are not just the things that are worthy, but the things to which we ascribe ultimate worth. That is, they grab our mind's attention and our heart's affection and touch upon our deepest desires. One of my favourite um, novelists is um, David Foster Wallace. He's sadly departed now. He's a pretty amazing author. But he wrote this. He's an atheist, but he wrote this. He says, here's something that's weird and true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for it may be choosing some kind of God or spiritual type of thing to worship or whatever. But it's the same set of ethical principles. It's pretty much anything else. He says the reason you choose something good to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. You see, friends, we are desiring beings. We like to think of ourselves as purely thinking cognitive beings, making rational choices all the time. But the whole trajectory of our life is shaped around our deepest desires. And our deepest desires orient every decision we make. They touch upon our identity as a person. And so we worship our way through life. The whole trajectory of our life is oriented by our worship. And this indicates something profound to us. Jesus made the observation, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's essentially saying is the thing that you ascribe ultimate worth to in life is where all of your energy will flow. Your resources will flow. Your time will flow. Everything flows in your life around the thing that is connected to your deepest and ultimate 
desire. And actually, the more we do that and the more we live into that thing, the more it forms us. Worship actually changes us and forms us as people. This is why Paul says to us at this point in the message version of what Aaron read to us, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping and you're eating and going to work and you're walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. You see, the world is discipling us all the time. And the heart is a factory of idols that are searching for significance and connection. And that deepest desire will tend to orient our life towards the thing we believe will give us ultimate significance. We are desiring beings and we are worshipping our way through life. You know, sometimes it's easier to see in someone else the thing on which they base their life. We're sometimes quite blind to it in ourselves. But this is where the wonderful act of worship as a Christian starts to reorient our life. It actually starts to liberate us from the thing we are looking to to save us, the thing that will ultimately let us down. St. Augustine said, and I've mentioned this before, he says that we have a list of loves in our life, but they're all in the wrong order. They are disordered loves. And he says that if anything else is our ultimate love, it will destroy us. Like David Foster Wallace says, it will eat us alive. If it is your job, you'll ruin your family. In fact, you'll ruin your job too. Because if you succeed in it, it'll go to your head and ruin you. And if you fail in it, as you inevitably will, or when it ends, as it inevitably does, It'll go to your heart and it'll kill you. You've got to find that worth. You've got to find worthy something greater than the things of this world. Or they'll slave you. They'll kill you. And the more you look to it, the more you're formed by that thing. And so this is why Augustine says, actually, the only safe thing to have is your ultimate love is God. And the more you are oriented towards God, the more the other things find their appropriate and safe place in your life. And this is why worship is so important, because worship actually helps retrain our habits. It helps us be reoriented on God, to live a life flowing from the awesome and astonishment and joy that comes when we recognize that we are loved ultimately by a God. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. At the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. But the Westminster Confession says something really beautiful at this point. Very classic confession says that man's, and this is the you know, the gender-exclusive language of it, but man's chief end is to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. There's a theologian called John Piper. He says, actually, we can adjust that a little bit because the enjoyment, in a sense, is everything. He says, our chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The delight, the flow, the mojo, the moment, the presence you feel when you are doing the thing that you look to for most significance, that's what we can find in God in worship. You know, if it's work, that time when you hit the desk and you've got those tasks and you're moving through them. If you're a salesperson, that moment you get the sale when things start flowing. If you're a seamstress, the moment you sit down and you've got it and it's beautiful and the plans all come together. The architect, when you look at those things and and find them. Even as a parent, the moment you look at your child and the love and the yes, this is all coming together. That yes, I'm doing the thing I'm built for, the thing that I'm made for, the thing that I enjoy, the thing that I look to. We can find that in worship. And when we find that in worship, we start actually enjoying God. And when God becomes our ultimate enjoyment, then God is most glorified in our life. Because the truth of it is this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Get that for a moment. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We worship God best when we rest and enjoy God the most. And this is what worship, in the sense of coming together at church, is to do. But not just here, in the fullness of our life. To live a life that is oriented around enjoying God, of looking to God as the one with ultimate worth. That God might, with astonishment and joy, be like that antique we suddenly realize must have pride of place in our life. To go, oh yes, you are wonderful. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it lovely? Isn't it precious? You wouldn't believe what it's worth. It's magnificent. It's glorious. And songs come forward and poetry comes forward and prayers come forward. And friends, this is worship. This is the wonderful thing about worship is that it flows into every part of our life. You'll notice today that I haven't talked about church music or anything like that. I want to leave that aside because this goes underneath that stuff. It goes actually, as Paul says, to the every part of our life as a living sacrifice. Not our words as some sort of sacrifice of praise on Sundays, but actually to the very deepest parts of our desires. Because when that is satisfied in the glorious and wonderful, beautiful gospel of Jesus, I think we don't really focus or care too much about the tune. I mean, the tune is wonderful and it's beautiful and we want to do it. And I think finally created art does 
give glory to God. And there is a sense by which I think it edifies us as well. And good worship will glorify God and also edify us. As, as we sang today in our worship, learning, brother, sister, let me serve you and allow you to be my servant. There is all this wonderful edification, growth, maturity stuff in the midst of it. We are shaped and changed by the act of worship to God. It thrills me that there is a time when we come forward and I join with you at communion. I preside and then come and I kneel to and receive. I need that. I need to be oriented that way. It's good for me to kneel regularly before the Lord. It is good for my soul. It shapes me and remembers that Jesus is the Lord of this church. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And so there is a wonderful sense by which the fact that, um, that worship does its best work in us, really when, no matter where we find ourselves, we are able to enjoy God and give God glory. C.S. Lewis says there are only really a couple of times that we can be absolutely assured that God is glorified in our worship. He says it's where one person... A person of trained and delicate taste humbly and charitably sacrifices their own little aesthetically right desires and gives people more humbler and coarser fare than he would prefer in a belief that this may bring them closer to God. And the other time is when perhaps a stupid and unmusical lay person humbly and patiently and above all silently listens to music which he cannot or cannot fully appreciate in the belief that somehow it glorifies God and that if it doesn't edify him, then I guess it is okay. Those are the two times when worship is really happening, when we can put that aside and enjoy God for God. In the ultimate belief, actually, that no matter how marvellous it gets on a Sunday morning or how marvellous our poetry during the week or how marvellous and eloquent our prayers in devotion before God, our praise and our worship really is merely a tuning of instruments ready for something else. You know, I, I preach generally because I can't sing. I would love to sing. I would love to sing. I, I sing in the shower. I sing around the office. It is, a song is continually upon my lips. I wish I could really sing and, um, and sing well. But you know what? I've had the opportunity to really sing well. And uh, one time it was in a choir that I joined. And singing as part of a choir is magnificent because you do your very best. And the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Isn't that wonderful? The other time I get to really sing is here with you. On a Sunday morning, no matter what comes up on the screen, I sing and I give it my all and I enjoy God. And the wonderful thing about it is, firstly, there's no one sitting in front of me to be annoyed by my voice. Uh, Thank God that I sit down the front, each of you. But I do it because I know that in the midst of it, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. But even our whole is just a fragment of what is happening in all of creation and heavens before the presence of the Lord. We are preparing for a marvellous worship service. And all creation, in a sense, is preparing to be part of a marvellous worship service. For our worship here is just a fragment participating in worship that is continually happening in the presence of God all the time. 
In Revelation, it tells us that day and night, those in the presence of God never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, it says the 24 elders fall down before him and who sits on the throne and worship him with their lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne in the presence of God and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they who were created and have their being. Worship is happening continually before God. The Lord is always glorified. The Lord is always worshipped and all creation sings. The heavens declare. The trees clap their hands. Friends, where we come together, no matter what we sing, keep in mind the fact that it is merely a voice in the midst of a large cry. We give our best, sing loudly and enjoy the presence of God for he is glorified and he is being worshipped and we have the privilege of participating in that worship. Here when we gather together, I think especially and marvellously, but as Paul says, in every little extra part of our life as well. Isn't he lovely? Isn't he precious? Isn't he holy? Let us stand before him. And let's together worship him as we close.